Someone once said to Mark Twain that he wished he'd never read Tom Sawyer. Twain said, why? Because then I'd have the privilege of reading it again for the first time. I I sometimes wonder if there's not something of, of that mindset and we who've read the story and heard the story and known the story of Christ's resurrection so often. We love it and we absorb it and and we declare it as central to our faith. But sometimes I wonder if we're not in danger of of losing some of its power because we know it so well. We know that Christianity is the only religion with an empty tomb. Other religions have leaders who die, even leaders who die for a just cause. But no other religion has an empty tomb. The resurrection is not just one of our beliefs. Without the resurrection, there's no such thing as Christianity. And I would guess that by and large, we are people who who know that and and who believe that. We're people who believe that the resurrection, uh, we believe in the resurrection. We believe the tomb is empty. And not because the disciples came and stole the body or, or because Jesus wasn't really dead or because they went to the wrong tomb but because Jesus was dead and buried, and now he's alive. But my question for us this morning is this, does knowing that Jesus is alive, does believing in the resurrection make any difference in how we live? Does Easter change us? If we believe in the resurrection, do we live like it? There's something of these questions that we find embedded in in this encounter between Jesus and the Sadducees that we read a little bit ago from the 12th chapter of Mark's gospel. Let me read it for you one more time. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? And Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. When you read this encounter, you get a feeling the Sadducees are, are next in line to stump Jesus. You know, sometimes I have this picture in my mind of, of Jesus teaching and there's this line of, of teachers of the law and the, and the religious leaders waiting in line to come up and ask their trick question of Jesus. You'd think they would learn after a while because every time they leave with their tails between their legs. Every time. And, but in fact, now Mark tells us that there's only one more trick question that they come to Jesus about after this one. And after that, they say, that's enough. We give up. And the Sadducees differ widely from the Pharisees. The Sadducees don't don't 
accept the massive oral law and tradition, the, the rules and regulations that are so dear to the Pharisees. The Sadducees accept only the written scriptures, and they attach the greatest importance to the Pentateuch, those first five books of Moses. And because they don't see in their mind any evidence in the Pentateuch for immortality or spirits or angels, then they reject them outright. And so the Sadducees come to Jesus with a question designed to make belief in the resurrection seem ridiculous. Deuteronomy 25 describes the practice of the leveret marriage that they talk about here. And it says that if a group of brothers lives together, and that is a point that the Sadducees omit, if they live together and one of them dies childless, it's the duty of the next brother to take his brother's widow as his wife and to bear a child for his own for his brother. And when that child is born, the child is considered to be the offspring of the original husband. Theoretically, I guess that could go on as long as there are brothers left and as long as there is no child born. And that law that honestly seems rather strange to us is intended to ensure the family name is carried on and that the, the family property remains within the family. So they come and they pose this question to Jesus in an attempt to make him and his theology look foolish. Their sarcasm is unmistakable. These theologians who, Mark tells us, do not believe in the resurrection, say to Jesus three times, when these people come back from the dead, when they come back from the dead, when they come back from the dead, just dripping with sarcasm. But Jesus turns it right back on them. And he says to them, you are mistaken. Because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And then Jesus says, all right, you want to talk about Moses? Okay, let's talk about Moses. When God appears to Moses, how does he identify himself? He says to Moses, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Would God claim to be the God of just ghostly shadows? Or of people who no longer exist? Is he the God of corpses? He doesn't say, I was their God. He says, I am their God. The point that Jesus makes is that without the resurrection, worshiping God is a powerless, hopeless exercise in futility. And so he wants them to see that the resurrection is not just a peripheral point. It's the essential point of God's kingdom. And Jesus says to them that the reason they miss it is because they don't really understand the scriptures. Their misunderstanding about the resurrection in heaven is rooted in their misunderstanding about God and about God's power and about God's promises because they don't understand God's word. You know, I suspect that our mistaken views of of heaven and eternity and earth, like the Sadducees, is often grounded in an inadequate perspective of the Scriptures, from which we understand who God is and what God does and what God promises. When we misunderstand the Scriptures, we follow the wrong maps. We're following our own maps instead of God's. And so what does the scriptures tell us about about this day that we celebrate today and the implications of Easter to the followers of Jesus Christ? I think one of the things it tells us is that 
But we, though we believe in the resurrection, because we do believe in the resurrection, it, eternity is a joy to anticipate because it's about Jesus. You know, a couple of years ago, Mitch Album, the author of the best-selling book, Tuesdays with Maury, wrote a novel uh, that he called The Five People You Meet in Heaven. And when you read this book, and it's, it also was put into a, made into a movie, you get a, com- you get a glimpse into common ideas that a lot of people have about heaven and about eternity. This book centers around Eddie, an aged war veteran who tends to rides at a seaside amusement park. An accident ends his life and, and begins his, his sojourn into the hereafter, where he encounters and comes to terms with his personal list of five people. And someone reviewing this book says that these people have been waiting for him there and they've got issues for him. The book's premise isn't all that far from, you know, the movie It's a Wonderful Life. That every person's life touches other people's lives. And and when we aren't around, we leave a void. It's a heaven that he describes in this book in which we are reconciled to people that we hurt on earth. And perhaps psychologically, maybe his conception of heaven makes some sense. I mean, we're all hoping for an eternity that brings resolution and wholeness. But here's the problem. That heaven he describes in this book is all about us. It's kind of a a secular humanist heaven. It's all about me. Everything about that eternal existence is about me. Now, we might not uh, see heaven as, as blatantly narcissistic as that, but we still tend to have a view of eternity that is very anthropocentric. I'm at the center of it. Heaven is about what I want to do. It's about my rewards. It's about what I'm going to get. And that is certainly a part of it. But there's something about that mindset that sneaks into our way of thinking that goes beyond just, I will receive the rewards that God has promised me to a mindset that believes that heaven and eternity is all about me. It's about meeting my needs rather than about being about God and our submission and worship of God. Jesus tells the Sadducees that our existence in heaven will be something like the angels. And it doesn't mean that We will look like angels, I don't think necessarily, but that we will spend our time doing what the angels do, worshiping God. And we we may well have those kinds of, of dreams that we have of reunions with saints and with loved ones, and those will be glorious times. But first and foremost, the resurrection means that we will be in the presence of God. And that presence will be all about his glory and about worshiping God and about turning our attention to God. John's revelation makes that point very clear. Just one of the examples comes from the seventh chapter. When John says, after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, And they were clothed in white and they held palm branches in their hands. They were shouting with a mighty shout. Salvation comes from our God on the throne and from the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne 
and around the elders and the four living beings, and they fell down face they fell face down before the throne, and they worshipped God. And they said, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. That will be the focal point of eternity with God. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that we can live eternally to worship God, be in his presence. When Sadducees are confused about heaven because they don't believe in the resurrection, they don't believe there's anything beyond this life. And I don't think that's our struggle. But maybe our struggle is is having a, a skewed view of what that will look like. And the problem is not just having a skewed view of what it will look like then, but that view, our view of heaven bears greatly on, on our view of how we live on this earth. Recently, I read of a professor of theology who not long after he was retired was diagnosed with inoperable cancer. He continued to teach and preach. And when someone asked him how he remained so buoyant, He replied that my greatest source of encouragement is the Christian story of God in which I was baptized in July of 1929. The Christian news is that Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from the dead. That death no longer has dominion over him. And he went on to say, "If, if human reason is the sole arbiter of truth, then the very idea of resurrection is preposterous. But if there is truth not limited by human understanding then we live in a new situation, a new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus' disciples understand the truth and the power of the resurrection and they are suddenly full of hope and possibility. They were frightened and discouraged and grieving. And then the risen Christ appeared to them and it transformed them through the power of the Holy Spirit into brave, hopeful, loving bearers of good news. This man who was wrestling with inoperable cancer said the Christian news is that Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from death and that death no longer has dominion over him. And he says, I bet my living and now I'm able to bet my dying that Jesus will have the last word. And that's why we live with hope. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. If we all get out of, if all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up. The first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. Because Jesus lives, you and I also can live. And our hope on this earth, the hope that comes from the risen Christ, is that we have the power of the Holy Spirit to live hopefully and victoriously and optimistically and faithfully. Not because we're so good, but because of Christ in us who is good. We live in a world that's continually drained with hopelessness and despair. We think about the news every day, the daily casualties in Iraq and the civil wars in Africa and the military action against protesters in places like Tibet. 
We read of the powerful drug cartels in South America, the threat of terrorism in so many places of the world, and the financial crises in so many nations of the world, the continual uh, uncovering of graft and corruption and embezzlement in government and big business, the increase in violent crimes in this nation and so many nations, crisis after crisis. And it's so easy to have this sense of fear and worry and concern stalking us. But on this day, on this day, we remember that there is more. And in that more, we have hope. Because Jesus lives. All who trust in him also live. And we have hope for the world to come, but we have hope in the world in which we live now. Because what we see is not the end. What we see and hear is not all there is. Power of God is still at work. And that is our hope because of the risen Christ. And we need to pour over the scriptures that continue to remind us of that hope and of that truth. Living as though we believe in the resurrection is not, does not just mean that it gives us a clearer perspective of eternity and, and hope as we live, but it also ought to sharpen our conscience as we live for Christ now. You know, if we believe that, that, that we're going to be the center of eternity, then how can you not believe that we're the center of life on this earth? If heaven is about us, then we're going to naturally believe that this world is all about us. But if heaven is about God, then this world is also about God. And that changes everything, including our perspective and our focus about how we live in this world. The resurrection is about the power of God to conquer death for Christ and for all who believe in Christ. But this victory is not just about the life to come. The scriptures tell us that that we can live with power over sin now. We can live victoriously now. Easter is God's declaration that, that he has the power to change us and to transform us and to empower us to live free from sin, to live victoriously. Not in ourselves, not in our own power, but in the power of the risen Christ. And the resurrection is God's call to let him transform us and set us free. And make us the people he wants us to be. I mean, isn't that Paul's point when he declares, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power. How we thank God who gives us victory over sin and death for Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and steady, always enthusiastic about the Lord's work, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Unfortunately, we often miss that. Some of you may remember in the 1940s when Mickey Cohen, a famous Los Angeles gangster, made a public profession of faith in Christ. His new Christian friends were elated. But as time passed, they began to wonder why he didn't leave his gangster lifestyle. 
And when they confronted him, he protested and said, you never told me I had to give up my career. He said, you never told me I had to give up my friends. I mean, after all, he said, there are Christian movie stars and there are Christian athletes and Christian businessmen. So what's the problem of being a Christian gangster? He said, if I have to give up all that, then if that's Christianity, count me out. And gradually, he drifted away from Christian circles, and ultimately, he died lonely and forgotten. And Chuck Colson, writing about him, says, Cohen was echoing the millions of professing Christians who, though unwilling to admit it, through the very lives posed the same questions. Not about being Christian gangsters, but about being Christianized versions of whatever we already are and of what we are determined to remain. We're much more interested in God Christianizing whatever we are than in God transforming us. Because we're preoccupied more with ourselves than with God. We aren't all that interested in hearing God's call to come and die, to worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I believe that's a direct result of our misunderstanding of the resurrection and of heaven and of eternity. Because resurrection is is transformation, not just reanimation. And when we realize that this life is not the end, we don't just live as though everything is about us. When we realize that all of eternity is about God, then we begin to all see that all of life is about God. And then we can be people who give and care and love. Without the resurrection without a clear view and picture of the resurrection, we're going to just naturally ask, ask, how can I I do what I want to do for myself? How can I get what I want for myself? Because that's what's most important. And so we, we think actually often in the same terms as, as what's described in Album's book, The Seven People You Meet in Heaven. We think that that if heaven's about us and getting things together, then we'll be less selfish on earth. But it doesn't work that way. Because if we have a self-centered view of eternity, we're going to have a self-centered view of earth. What about a a self-centered view of heaven would motivate us to live selflessly before we ever get to heaven? But when you live with a with a genuine God-centered resurrection mindset, then you look in the faces of people and you realize that these are people who are going to live forever. These people with whom we work and live and worship and, and encounter are not entities to be taken lightly. They're people who are, who are eternal beings and we need to treat them as Jesus does with grace and dignity and love and mercy. I think that's resurrection living. Because of the victory of Easter, God gives us eyes to see people as they are. As often broken and hurting. We see other people as they are and it makes us less less quick to wound and hurt and to put down each other. And we're filled with Christ's spirit of love and compassion and grace and accountability and mercy and forgiveness and holiness with one another. 
Because our God is God of the living and not the dead. We understand that God is present in all of life. And therefore, all of our encounters with people are never coincidences. They are opportunities to see God and to experience God's grace and to grow in our faith and trust of God as he comes to us in other people. And as we come to other people in the name of Christ. Living with a biblical understanding of resurrection ought to have a purifying effect on us. In fact, John declares in his first letter, Dear friends, we are already God's children. And we can't even imagine what we will be like when Christ returns. But we know that when he comes, we will be like him. For we will see him as he really is. And all who believe this will keep themselves pure. Because Christ is pure. Our belief in the resurrection doesn't make any difference in how we live, how we treat people, how we view the world, how we respond to tragedy. We have to wonder if we truly believe in the power of the resurrection. I read a story about about an annual Easter tradition at a, a church in Georgia. Every year on Easter Sunday, the church was decorated with 500 Easter lilies a lot of lilies. And the lilies were arranged in the chancel in the shape of a cross, and they were across the altar rail and across the front of the church and in the windowsills. Everywhere they could find a place, there were lilies, 500 of them. Everywhere you looked, there were Easter lilies. And every year, members of the church were given the opportunity, as we do here, to have one of the lilies placed there, either in honor or in memory of a loved one. And they did that for a contribution of just $5. And the people at five dollars, wow. And and then you didn't even have to take them home with you after the service. The church took care of that. They disposed of them. And everyone just assumed that they were taken to shut ins, the hospital, those kinds of things. And all went well until one Easter that after the worship service, a, a woman came back into the church and she said, I have an aunt who's in a nursing home, and so if you don't mind, I'll just take my lily to her and she I'll just pick one out. And before anyone could stop her, she she took one of the lilies out of the window. And in a loud voice, loud enough to hear all the way across the parking lot, she said, oh, my goodness, it's plastic. Everybody came rushing back into the sanctuary. They're looking at the lilies. Every single one of them was plastic. There was a board meeting the next night. They were lucky it wasn't that night, but they at least had a, a night. And the pastor and the chairman of the board sat there like they were in front of a firing squad as members shot questions at them. How long has this been going on? Where do you hide the 500 plastic Easter lilies? And the one question everybody wanted to know, what happened to the $5 contributions? Well, the chairman tried to explain that that the money had not been used for dishonest purposes. Half of it had been placed in the general fund and the other half was given for missions. And, and the pastor said, yeah, and you, you know what usually happens to real Easter lilies? You know, after the Easter service, most people take them home, water them a few days, and the blooms fall off, and they just get thrown away. And we just thought that was a terrible waste. And he said, you wouldn't want to waste Easter, would you? 
What a great question. I guarantee you, because the aroma is clear, these are real Easter lilies that you see up here. We don't want to go through life wasting Easter. And sometimes we say, if if today were the last day I were to live, then it would change what I do, how I think, my perspective, how I treat people. What's to stop us from living that way now? What's to stop us from, from living in the power of the resurrection now? Whether today is our last day or not. To live with a a God-centered focus to life. To live with with the optimism and hope of people who know that God is still in control. That God has promised us more than what we can see with our eyes. To live as people who share the, the love and the grace of our resurrected Christ with one another and with our world. This day is is the great celebration of life over death. So let's not waste it. Let's commit ourselves together to live in the power of Christ's resurrection. Gracious Father, We ask that you would give us a new infusion of life in Christ. We pray, Father, that as your spirit is is poured out upon us and as as our minds and our hearts embrace this great day of celebration, give us a new focus with you at the center. And out of that focus, give us the hope that is ours in Christ. Make us people who live in the victorious power of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.